We're in Leviticus, uh, beginning this morning, and uh, I've got to tell you, several people have mentioned to me this past week how excited they are to be starting the book of Leviticus, to which I say, really? Uh, that's pretty awesome. And so to be able to be uh, the, the teaching pastor at a church where people are saying, I am so excited to, to learn from Leviticus, I mean, that, that's a pretty easy gig. Okay, that's a pretty blessed position I have, and so I'm excited to open God's Word to you to a section of Scripture that may not be as familiar or is as easy for us to understand as other parts of God's Word, and so hopefully what we go through this morning will kind of help you begin to understand how we see Jesus and Him revealed in Leviticus. We're in Leviticus 1. We're going to be talking about five offerings that occur and are described in chapters 1 through 7. And we're just going to read the first one here in chapter 1, and it's the, the burnt offering, and then we're going to talk through the other ones as well. And so if you're able to, if you would stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together. Leviticus chapter 1, reading from the English Standard Version. And remember, Exodus ended with the people unable to even enter the, the tabernacle because the glory of the Lord had filled it. Moses wasn't even able to go near Verse 1, the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you shall bring an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons and the priests shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall lay the flay, the burnt offering, and cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head, And the fat on the wood that is on the fire on the altar, but its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar, all of it, as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish. And he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. And he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat. And the, piece, the priest shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons, and the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place for ashes. He shall tear it open by its wings, but shall not sever it completely, and the priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. You may be seated. We go through the next few chapters and describes these different offerings. Then as you come to chapter 6, there's more descriptions about how the offerings are are made. And then at the end of chapter 7, it concludes, this is the law of the burnt offering, of the grain offering, of the sin offering, of the guilt offering, of the ordination offering, 
and of the peace offering which the Lord commanded Moses on Mount Sinai on the day that he commanded the people of Israel to bring their offerings to the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. Let's pray. And Father, we do again just ask your blessing upon our time. We pray that you would help us to understand who your son Jesus is as our perfect sacrifice. We pray this in the name of your son Jesus. Amen. What is it that you and I really need? What is it that you and I truly and, and really need? It's one of the most difficult and yet foundational questions for us to ask. What is it that we really need? And people answer the question in different ways. Some people answer the question in terms of sustaining life. So what do we need to sustain life? And a person might say, we need food, you need water, you need shelter. Another person might answer the question kind of psychologically. Well, you need significance, you need to be uh, appreciated, you need love, you need worth, you need freedom, independence. A person might answer the question what you need psychologically. A person might answer that question materially and and not all that accurately, right? Well, I kind of need an iPhone. I I need this pair of running shoes. I I need to have a Netflix. I'm just speaking for myself here, my needs. But, you know, different things that people say that they need. There's a short story by Tolstoy. And in the story, a man is told that he can have all the land that he can can walk around. The name of the, the story is How Much Land does a man need? And this, this person is told he can have all the land that he can walk around, but the catch is that he has to be able to complete the circuit in, in a day, from sunrise to sunset. And the man is very ambitious, and he tries to get a large piece of land, and as he, as he comes back, he just barely makes it. He arrives back at the starting point just as the sun sets, only to fall down dead from exhaustion. And at the end of the story, he's, he's buried And Tolstoy answers the question, how much land does a man need? Well, just enough, ultimately, to be buried in. What is it that you and I really need? And the answer is is both good and bad. Good news and bad news. The good news is that you and I need way less than we think we do. Way less. The bad news is that what we desperately need, what we truly need, is far more impossible to obtain than we could ever imagine. What you and I ultimately really need is a relationship with God. We need to be in fellowship with God. And the good news is, ultimately, that is all that we, that we need. The bad news is obtaining that relationship and being in fellowship with God is far more impossible on our own to obtain than we could ever imagine. What I want us to do together is I want us to look at the book of Leviticus, and as we look at these first seven chapters, we're going to, to see in these, in these chapters these sacrifices, five sacrifices described, and in the sacrifices we're going to see our Lord Jesus Christ. And what you and I are going to understand, the central idea that I want us to think about together, is that all we really need to come before a holy God is found in our perfect sacrifice, 
Jesus Christ. All you and I need, ultimately, to come before holy God and be in fellowship with him is found in our perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ. Now, let's, let's remember where we are as we begin Leviticus. Leviticus comes right after the end of Exodus, not just in terms of where it is in your Bible, but chronologically as well. These, these books are very closely connected. And remember what's happened in the book of Exodus. When you come into chapter 33, remember there's just been the incident of the golden calf, the sin there as the Israelites descended into idolatry, and there's a danger to the Israelites. And God has told them that they will not be able to enter into the land with his presence. He will not be with them. And Moses intercedes for the people, and in Exodus 33 says, look, God, if, if you aren't with us in this, if you aren't part of us, the, the, the promised land is not the promised land without you. We need to be in relationship and fellowship with you. And so God agrees to go and be with the people, but after we saw the description of the tabernacle being built, we come to the end of the book of Exodus, and there's another problem. Remember as we came to the, book, the, the end of the book of Exodus, it says, The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So now you have this this dwelling place in which God's God's presence is manifested in this this visible way, in this this special way, and the problem is no one can can enter it. No one can be in, in, in the presence of this holy God. Now, the book of Leviticus, the book of Leviticus answers the question, how can a sinful people be in relationship and in the presence of a holy God? And as we study the book of Leviticus, it forces you and I to ask ourselves the same question, how can we, who are sinful, be in fellowship and in the presence of a holy God? It's a crucial question for us to consider And Leviticus calls us to ask ourselves that question. And again, the answer is found in Jesus Christ. All you and I need to be in fellowship and relationship with God is found in the perfect sacrifice, Jesus. So let's let's look at these five offerings and let's see how Jesus Christ meets the needs that we see in all of these offerings. In, In these offerings, we see what the people of Israel need. And as we look at what they need, we realize we need the same thing. We see that Jesus Christ fulfills what you and I need. Here's the first offering. The first offering is a burnt offering. And as we look at the burnt offering, we see that we need reconciliation. The burnt offering tells us that we need reconciliation. It's described here in chapter 1. And as you Hopefully noticed as we read through it, there's kind of three sections here. It talks about, well, if you offer for a burnt offering a, 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 a cattle, some, something from the herd, and then the second section talks about the flock, and then the third section for those who are poor talks about offering a bird. And here's what would happen. This burnt offering was a voluntary offering. You look here in the first Just for example, you look at what it says about offering from the herd. It says that the person who is offering this offering offers a male. And and these offerings would have been done twice a day. So a person voluntarily comes before the priest. They bring this offering right before the tent of meeting. They would would slaughter the animal there. It says 
They lay their hand on the head of the burnt offering, and as they do so, they're confessing their sins, that the animal is, is dying in place of them, and it says they kill the bull before the Lord, verse 5. And the priest takes the blood, throws it against the sides of the altar, and then the entire offering is, is placed there on the altar, and the whole thing is consumed here in the burnt offering. Now, it also says, it's a, it's a pleasing aroma. It says it three times here in the first chapter. It says it in chapters two and three. This, this offering is, is a pleasing aroma. God finds it acceptable. What was the Israelites' spiritual need here? What's happening is that an animal is, is dying in, in place of the person who is offering this sacrifice. Look at verse 4. It says this is an, an atonement. And that word atonement carries with it the idea of reconciliation. So the person who is offering this offering recognizes, I understand that what happened in Exodus is true. I understand that whenever God says that, that if he goes with us on the way, there's a, a danger of him consuming us. I understand that I am rightly in line of, of God's wrath as he punishes sin because I am a sinner. And what this offering says is I, I recognize that need and I'm that this animal is dying in my place. It's taking the death that I deserve. It's a propitiation. It's this idea of, of turning away God's wrath. It doesn't remove sin, but it makes fellowship with God possible. The people of Israel needed to have God's wrath turned away so the, proce the process of, of reconciliation could begin. That's this idea of atonement, reconciliation. Now, what's, what's our need? Going to the book of Leviticus for a 21st century Christian in North America is very helpful. Because as you come to Leviticus and you, and you see the word sacrifice used, you understand there is a, a far deeper understanding of the nature of our need for Jesus Christ. You see, our, our pop culture Christianity here in 21st century North America would also say, well, we, we need Jesus. But they would say this, and we run the danger of saying this as well. We need Jesus to, to have a happy marriage. We need Jesus to make good investment decisions. We need Jesus to, to be healthy. We need Jesus to have a good self-image. We need Jesus to kind of help us raise our kids. Now, it's true that we need Jesus in all those areas, but our need for Jesus is far more profound and foundational than pop culture Jesus would have us understand. As we come to Leviticus, we understand I'm in danger of God's wrath because I am a sinner. My, my need is far more profound than I, than I grasp. It's like walking into a, a car mechanic and saying, yeah, I need you to take a look at my car. I think it needs an oil change. And the mechanic comes out, and you show him what you're talking about, and the mechanic says, yeah, um, you, you definitely need oil, but there, there's, there's some other problems as well. Uh, you don't have doors. You don't have an engine itself. There's no frame. And in fact, really, you've just come here with a big tire, and it's flat. You know? Your need is far more profound than you understand. You don't just need Jesus to fix your marriage. You don't just need Jesus to be healthy physically or emotionally. You don't just need Jesus to have a good self-image. You have a foundational problem, and that is that you and I deserve God's wrath because we're sinners. We need reconciliation. We need to be reconciled to God. 
and Jesus Christ provides the perfect sacrifice. In other words, you and I have nothing to offer God to say, God, let, let your wrath turn away from me. We have the perfect sacrifice, though, in Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 7 describes Jesus as a priest, and we'll talk about this more next week. But not only is Jesus the perfect priest, he's also the perfect sacrifice. He's holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Romans chapter 3 says that God put forth Jesus as a a propitiation, that is a complete satisfaction by Jesus' blood to be received by faith. 1 John 4 says, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son, Jesus, to be a propitiation, a complete satisfaction for our sins. You need Jesus to reconcile you to God. We're separated from God because of sin. We cannot bridge that gap between ourselves and God on our own, and so we need a perfect sacrifice. We need Jesus. We need reconciliation, and that reconciliation is found in Jesus. Let's look at the next offering. The next offering is the grain offering. And in the grain offering, in the second offering of the grain offering, we see that we need thankfulness. Second offering, the grain offering, we need thankfulness. He describes it this way, chapter 2. It says, when anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be a fine flour. In fact, as you go through chapter 2, kind of the same pattern you saw in chapter 1, there's three different offerings described here. This first one is an uncooked offering. It says that this person would take this fine flour, they would pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priest, and he shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and oil with all its frankincense, and the priest shall burn this as a memorial, that word memorial, means uh, kind of this, this, this tribute or this, this, member, this, this remembrance. This memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma, but the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's offerings. And so this offering is taken, this, this grain offering was often offered with other sacrifices. So you have the burnt offering and a grain offering might be a part of it, or sin offering and the grain offering might be a part of it. You take a little bit of the grain, you put it on the offering, and then you take the rest of the grain and you give it to the priest and and his family. It's part of the way that they're able to to live and to eat. This offering is is offered with sacrifice to to indicate to God thankfulness. It's it's a memorial saying, okay, God, I I remember what you've done for me, and I I want you to to remember me, and and I'm thankful for you and your provision as it's offered with these other offerings. Now, why do the people of Israel need a grain offering? A person cannot rightly worship God without thankfulness, right? And what have we, what have we already talked about concerning the Israelites? The Israelites were not consistently thankful people. They were grumblers. They were complainers. To be in right fellowship with God, there must be thankfulness on the part of, of, of his people as they recognize his graciousness, his compassion, his salvific work. And so this, this grain offering is this offering of thankfulness, a thankfulness that the people themselves do not inherently have. Now, 
What's our need? You and I, in order to be in right fellowship with God, must be thankful. And you and I, like the Israelites, struggle with thankfulness. We cannot rightly be in fellowship with a God who who has saved us, who has delivered us from sin into salvation. We cannot rightly be in fellowship with God unless there is a proper sense of thankfulness on our part. For us to to rightly worship God, we have to be aware of his his faithfulness, of his steadfast love, his chesed that we talked about last week. And and apart from that, we, we can't be in right relationship with him. Have you ever gotten a gift from someone, you sat down, and you were writing out a thank you card, and you start writing out the thank you card, and you kind of look at what you've written, and you go, I don't know, this, this just doesn't seem, doesn't really convey how thankful I am for what this person, you guys kind of rip it up, you know, okay, let me start again, uh, dearest friend, uh, words cannot express, and then you kind of look at, yeah, well, then why am I writing? I don't know what to say here. This, this, thank, this thank you card doesn't even begin to cover what this person has done for me. You and I cannot be thankful enough for God, to, to God, for what he's done. If you and I started right now, right this second, and we begin to say, okay, I'm just going to spend the rest of my life thanking God for what he's done, we would, it, the time would not be sufficient because at every moment, we'd have, we'd have to be saying, oh, and, and thank you for this moment, and thank you for this moment, and thank you for this moment. When we would also be saying, and thank you for this, and thank you for there, There's no way, if we begin right now and continue on to eternity, there isn't enough time to be as thankful to God as right worship would require. In other words, I can't come before God with the thankfulness that he deserves. So what can I do? Am I out of luck? Is there no possibility for me to be in in right relationship with him because I can't be thankful enough? No, because I have a sacrifice that has been offered on my part, Jesus Christ himself, and and he, as as the perfect grain offering, is sufficient, is beyond sufficient. His value is infinite. Jesus Christ, his sacrifice, is the perfect expression of thanks that you and I could not offer. And because of my union with him through faith in him, on the basis of his sacrifice, God can look at me and find me thankful. This should transform our lives, right? A couple weeks ago, I was listening to a group of pastors talk on this panel, and one of the pastors mentioned how sometimes in his conversations with his wife, they were complaining instead of thankful. And he mentioned Psalm 40, verse 5, and I I came home and I said, I want to read Psalm 40, verse 5 with you. And listen to what Psalm 40, verse 5 says. And I read this with Whitney, and we just kind of talked about it for a few minutes. It says this, You have multiplied, O Lord. You have multiplied, O Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds. And your thoughts toward us, none can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. Jesus Christ is our our perfect sacrifice of thankfulness, our our perfect grain offering. And Psalm 40, verse 5, is is a verse that I cannot fulfill on my own because because what the psalmist says is exactly right. I'm going to proclaim and I'm going to talk about the things you've done, yet yet they're more than can be told. In and of myself, I'm a a bitter person. I'm a complainer. I'm a grumbler. 
I cannot be thankful enough to God on my own to be in fellowship with him. Instead, I have Jesus Christ, who's my offering on my behalf, my perfect offering of thankfulness, and in my union with him, I can become more like him. That's why Paul says in Colossians 3, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Bitterness can't take heart in the root, it can't take root in the heart of a thankful person, right? Let's look at the peace offering. As we look at the peace offering, we see that we need fellowship. The peace offering is described in chapter 3, and, and it's very similar to what we read about in the burnt offering, and yet there's one substantial difference. As we look at the, the peace offering, we see that this is a an offering that addresses our need for, for fellowship. You say, well, well, how is that? As it's described here, again, there's this, this kind of going from most valuable to least valuable sacrifice. There's, there's cattle described in verses 1 through 5 and the offering of, of, uh, of uh, sheep in verses 6 through 11 and goats in verses 12 through 17. And then as you come to chapter 7, this offering is returned to. It's described how it's to be offered. And you come to verse 15, and it says, And the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering for thanksgiving shall be eaten on the day of his offering. You say, wait, what's going on there? What's happening here is the people would offer this offering, and then the entire animal wouldn't be consumed. Part of the sacrifice would be eaten by the family. Isn't that a beautiful thing? You come in the book of Deuteronomy and it's just describing this. It says, look, um, you're going to go to the place that the Lord your God will choose. You're going to offer these offerings. And it says, and, and listen to this. Listen to how it describes this offering. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants, and the Levite that is within your town. In other words, as you come and you offer the sacrifice, it's not just this, this monotonous, okay, I've got to offer the sacrifice. There, I hope, I hope God enjoys his cow. No, it, you offer this sacrifice and as you offer part of the sacrifice on the, on the, on the altar, the other part of the sacrifice, you're, you're, you're participating and you're, you're eating, you're, you're, you're fellowshipping with your family. It's, it's this joyous occasion. You're delighting in God and in one another. Isn't that a beautiful thing? I'm going to go back to that just as an aside. If you're a person who likes to take Bible verses out of context and use them for exercise, um, Leviticus 3.16 is great. It says, all fat is the Lord's. Okay, so if you ever want to, yeah, all fat is the Lord's. Leviticus 3.16, you know, if you need that, that's, that's there. But it's not about exercise, okay? It's not about exercise. It's about fellowship and about relationship, about enjoying community together. The Israelites needed relationship. The people of God needed to be in, in right relationship with one another so they could be in right relationship with God. Now, what do you and I need? What do you and I need? The people of God, believers who are part of the community of faith, need fellowship. We need to be in right relationship with one another, and we need to be in right fellowship and relationship with God. And Jesus Christ, once again, is the perfect peace offering who provides fellowship. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2. He talks about the divisions between the Jew and the Gentile. 
And he says, but now, this is Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by what? By the blood of Christ. For he himself is what? He's our, our peace. He is our peace. His, his blood is our, is our peace offering. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. God desires for his people to be in right relationship and fellowship with one another. And, and in and of myself, I, I can't do it. I don't have the right ability in and of myself to, to be in relationship with you the way that I need to be. I don't have the means to, to, to make amends for things that I've done. I, I, don't, you know, I, I don't have the means in and of myself to, to be appealing to, to bring us t- together, to bring me in relationship with you. And, and quite frankly, you don't have it in you to bring me to you. But in Jesus Christ, our, our perfect peace offering, he provides the means for fellowship. I saw something very, very sad and yet something very beautiful in this room last week after second service. Some of you are a part of it. After second service, you know, I'm usually one of the last groups to leave, and so I'm, I went out and was saying hi to everyone and then came back in here and in this room at the end of time. And Seth and Jen Kemp were back for the weekend, and, and I saw just a very beautiful thing there, there in the back, just right back there, Seth and Jen and, and their, their care group and their friends were, were just back there, and, and there were some tears, right? Why, why were there tears? Because there had been real relationship among, among those believers, real fellowship that, that Christ himself had created. Brothers and sisters, we need fellowship. We need to pursue relationship deep relationships and, and true relationships. And so often as Christians, uh, we stay shallow. We're willing to do the, the five-minute meet and greet in the hallway or something. We're, we're willing to do the, maybe we're even able, maybe sometimes we're even willing to do the, you go to my house and I'll come to your house a couple times. Maybe I'll do care group kind of really briefly in and out, kind of hover. But, but we're not really, we often we hit the wall. And we're not willing to get messy. We're willing to be in fellowship until the, the first real test comes, and we're not willing to, to push beyond it. Yeah, I'll go until I, I see the first ugliness in you, and then I'm, I'm, I'm out of here in, in relationally. I'll, I'll go until we have our first fight, and, and then I'm, I'm out relationally. I'll, I'll go until the first disappointment, and then I'm removing myself relationally. God's call on us, brothers and sisters, is deeper than that. I remember, I'm going to paraphrase, I meant to ask Kevin about this earlier. Kevin one time said something to me, I can't remember how he phrased it, but, but it was, well, it was much well phrased, much better phrased than I'm about to say, but he said something like, sometimes you have to invite people over to your house when it's messy. Now, I've, 
I've never been to his house when it's messy. It's always beautiful. But sometimes you have to, you have to invite people over when things are messy because that's real. Sometimes we want to create these, these, these idyllic worlds and, and, and let people into just, just a little bit of our lives, but instead God calls us, look, you need true fellowship. We need to persist past the hard stuff, the hurt feelings, the, the lonely nights, the disappointments that people create in, in our hearts, arguments, the ugly stuff, and pursue true fellowship. We can't do it on our own, but Christ creates this community by his blood. We need that. Fourth offering is the sin offering. Sin offering is the, the fourth one here. And as we look at the sin offering, what we see is that we need cleansing. We need cleansing. In chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 4, on into chapter 5, describe this offering. And it's interesting, this, this offering is dealt with in different ways throughout the Pentateuch and, and through Scripture. We see here that, that it makes this right relationship with God for either in unintentional or intentional sins. And it describes the sin offering for different people, for for leaders, for priests, for the whole congregation, for just one of the, the common people. It describes people who've sinned intentionally beginning in chapter 5. And again, there's various animals that can be offered. There's a laying on of hands to indicate sin. And there is, there's something different that's done with the blood here, though. The other sacrifices that involve blood had the blood on the sides of the altar. Here, the, the blood is taken in, and smeared in different places. What's happening there? Hebrews describes it this way. It says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now, what happens here, it seems that these verses are indicating that that sin pollutes. Sin pollutes. And it it leaves a trace. I think it was a few years ago, a year and a half, two years ago, our family had an incident. Someone was was cooking (coughs) some beans, and there was someone, a child who was left in charge of the beans, and the the child forgot about this incident of, of caring for the beans. And so, the beans burned very quickly and very, very badly. Uh, the beans smelled terrible. Burnt beans is not a great smell. And the smell permeated our entire house. We got rid of the, the beans. We may even got rid of the pot. I mean, we, and we just kind of scrubbed the kitchen. And the next day, the, the, the burnt bean smell persisted. And so, you know, we, we scrubbed down everything again. We opened all the windows, and yet the smell persisted. We went away on vacation for a week, and then we walked back into the house, and as we opened the doors, just the, that burnt bean odor continued. We washed the curtains. We wiped down the light bulbs all over through the house. The, the, the smell permeated and persisted. If you come over today, no. It's better now, but it lasted. Eventually, we changed out some vents in the house, and time went by, and it, and it, and it was dealt with. <clears throat> Got rid of one of the children. Sin permeates. And, and th- this seems to be true as well. 
the material world, the physical world, is sometimes affected by immaterial things. Does that make sense? Immaterial things can, can leave a, a trace, an impact on the material world. So, for example, you're in your car, and you're listening to a song on the radio, and the, the song comes on, and, and it's, it's a physical thing. Your, your ears are able to physically hear it, and yet there's an emotional reaction because that's the song your, your uh, junior high girlfriend broke up to you to. And so there's this, this emotional response when you, 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 you feel that there's an there's a, there's a immaterial connotation with a material thing. Last year, Whitney and I walked up to a house in Dallas, Texas, and we knocked on the door, and we asked the owner if we could look in his garage, and he said, why? I said, well, we used to live there. He let us look at this garage that had been converted into a, a one-room studio apartment. We walked into this, this, this room, and it's, it's a physical place. It's a material place, but there were immaterial emotions projected on it. They, they lingered, and we all oh, remember that was where we, that's where we, burnt beans for the first time on that stove. You know, that's, this, is, this is where we watched that scary movie that night and, and stayed up all night. This is, this is where we had our, our first dinner. This is where we, we found out that this, this, uh, this bookshelf we'd had, we stole from someone accidentally. There's unintentional sin. We had to offer a sacrifice. We're all sorts of things. You see what I mean, though? A, a, a material place can be affected by immaterial things. Now, now here's, here's what seems to be true with sin. There's, there is a polluting effect of sin. And brothers and sisters, what's our spiritual need? You and I struggle with sin and its effects. We struggle with shame. We struggle, we struggle with people who have sinned against us, the, the physical and the emotional scars. We struggle with how we have sinned against others. And there's, there's this sense sometimes we can't get past it. Now, what is Jesus? Jesus covers intentional and unintentional sin. He is our, our perfect sin offering. Sometimes it's called the, the cleansing offering as well to help distinguish it from the burnt offering and the, the guilt offering that's about to follow. In Hebrews 9, verses 7 through 9, talk about how the blood of sheep and goats and, and the, the, the sacrifices aren't sufficient. But then it comes to verse 13. It says, Now if the blood, and, the, the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of foul persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You and I don't have it in ourselves to remove from ourselves the, the staining effects of sin. Sin had left a crimson stain, right? And you and I don't have the ability in and of ourselves to, to cleanse all the, the effects of sin from the, the people's lives that we've hurt. We don't have the ability to, to cleanse from our lives the hurt that other people have caused. And yet, what can we do? We can, we can cling to Jesus who is the perfect sin offering who completely and thoroughly deals with sin and its consequences. And as we're reminded of sin and, and its effects, we can cling to Jesus and say, Jesus has paid it all. Jesus has dealt with this. Here's the last offering I want us to talk about. It's, it's the guilt offering. 
And as we look at the guilt offering, what, what we see is that you and I need repentance. We need repentance. The offering begins to be described in chapter, chapter 5, beginning in, in verse 14. It describes this guilt offering. Again, takes, takes, takes this animal, take a, takes a ram. And again, probably it doesn't mention it explicitly, but the hand is laid on it. And it's described as, as, as this compensation. And, and he offers this, this sacrifice. And then in verse 16 it says, He shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss. Okay. Now, what does this mean? This is a situation where this person has either, either wronged God or another person. And let's say that I'm an Israelite, I've wronged another Israelite, I, I need to make restitution. But before I make restitution, I, I offer this sacrifice indicating my need to make restitution, my need for repentance. Now, why is this so important? Why is this so important, this, this kind of offering? Why not just go, let's say that I've, I've, I've wronged uh, Andrew, why don't I just, I just go to Andrew, hey, Andrew, sorry about that, here you go. Why, why do I start with a sacrifice? The Israelites needed repentance, not penance. You and I, our spiritual need is not for penance, it's for repentance. You say, what do you mean? What's the difference? If I've wronged Andrew, I don't come to Andrew and say, Andrew, here, I, I've wronged you, so I'm going to make up for it. And here, here's what I've done wrong, and I, I make up for him. And then I say, yeah, I've done it. It's me. No, I, I, I recognize I need to turn not from dead works to more works. If I've sinned against someone, I need to turn from dead works, the, the wrong things I've done, and I need to cling to Jesus. Again, the idea is my repentance can't earn my right relationship with Andrew, whoever I've wronged, and it can't earn my relationship with God. Jesus Christ is my perfect guilt offering. He is the one who I can, I can cling to and say, okay, on the basis of Jesus Christ's death and sacrifice on the cross, I, I'm going to, to make restitution. Sacrifice comes before restitution. Restitution is not a work that I do in order to earn salvation. It's, it's a fruit of my repentance that Jesus Christ works within me. You see the difference there? Christ's death is not only the perfect burnt offering, it's not only the perfect peace offering, not only the perfect grain offering, not only the perfect sin offering, it's also the perfect guilt offering. There's no life in the universe more precious than Jesus's. When we talk about the, the precious blood of Christ, for me, there's, there's no value you could charge that would be higher. And so I come before God offering not myself, but clinging to Jesus, and then I make restitution to others. Colossians 2 says, or excuse me, Luke chapter 19, we see Zacchaeus coming before Jesus, and he says, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now, what, is, what does Zacchaeus do? As he makes restitution, he doesn't first of all say, Now, because I've done that, accept me. He clings to Jesus first, and then there's the fruit of that. Brothers and sisters, what do we see as we look at these offerings? What do we need? What do you and I ultimately need? Again, good news and bad news. The good news is we need way less than we think. We need le way less material things. We need 
ultimately less emotional, we have less emotional needs than we think we have. What we ultimately need is relationship with God. The bad news is we cannot obtain it on our own. It's far more impossible for us to, to obtain than we could ever imagine. But the more good news is that we have Jesus Christ, our perfect sacrifice. As we cling to Jesus, our perfect sacrifice, God looks upon him and forgives us. And we're enabled to be a sacrifice ourselves. First Peter, close with this verse. First Peter tells us this in chapter two, verse five, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Leviticus asks us, how can we be in the presence of a holy God? How can we be in fellowship with him? Leviticus points us to the answer, only in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus, our perfect sacrifice. We cling to him this morning by faith, trusting in you to work within us by your grace through our faith in your son Jesus on the basis of his perfect sacrifice on the cross. We pray this in his name. Amen.